an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Uh, my life in media, just a couple of highlights here. Uh, from a very early age, I was interested in the media. Before I could read, I was looking at pictures in the news magazine Life. That's me on the left there. Um, as you can tell, very fabulous. In, in high school, I had, uh, was doing recording, reporting for essentially not a make-believe audience, but not a broadcast audience. I was exchanging tapes with a friend of mine who I'd known in grade school in California. And he, would, I, he and I would try to outdo each other. He had moved back from, Mich back from Michigan to California after our eighth grade year. And we were real close though, and we loved the, liked, liked the same kinds of things. So we tried to outdo each other in our productions, but he got together a group of people. Nobody else in my school was interested. And one year he had the exclusive radio rights to covering the San Francisco Chinatown Parade for Chinese New Year. I couldn't come close to that. Oh. My prop here goes in between, actually. Uh, this is not the original microphone, but much to my parents' chagrin, because they did not think this is a very noble profession. Uh, I got a microphone just like this for my 11th birthday. And my audience were people outside the bedroom window where I had the speaker aiming out, blasting out. So <laughs> it is part of my DNA. I don't know, or part of my, uh, part of how, whatever the Lord has inside us. So I've been, uh, I come about this obsession with media, honestly. Years later, we've been doing some podcasting since 2005 here at Franciscan University. We're kind of an in-between time now. But the technology that is available through computer software and hardware uh, lets me have the studio at home for audio recording, for podcasting, and so on. So that's my home set up there right now. And the computer is the key for all of this. It's brought it together. Uh, most of my working career, career has been in, in, in television and communications of one kind or another. I was in corporate television for 12 years. And then I came here and I've been continuing to do production as well as teach communications here at Franciscan University. In, high, in college, I did uh, quite a bit of radio. And uh, my parents, as I say, were not very enthusiastic about it. Um, they were not enthusiastic at all about it. They were hoping it was a phase that would pass, but it never has. So that had been a struggle, uh, been a struggle. And I hope that the decisions I made are the decisions the Lord wanted me to make, wanted me to make. So I know I've been, I've been through some, some interesting decision making and having to, having to talk and not always pleasantly and smoothly with my parents years and years and years ago. Uh, we all got to love each other and respect each other, get along with each other great after a while. But there were some rough, there were some rough times, some rough conversations for a while. And I'm sure that some of the people in this room have had similar experiences as well. And if not, great. But if you have, pray, work through it. The Lord will give everyone the grace that they, that they need to get through it. I wanted to talk a little bit, just mentioned as part of the introduction here, we, uh, some, well, a... Not, not exactly a survey, but an expert in communications came up with uh, a way of describing technology in terms of what people think. The computer's way over there and the font's small. Anything that's in the world when you're born, it's normal, it's ordinary, and just a natural part of the way the world works. So whatever was around when you were born is just, just part of the atmosphere, part of the ecosystem. Anything that's invented between the time people are 15 and 35 years old, they think it's new, amazing, revolutionary. So that's the stage, the age group that you are in. That's new stuff coming along is likely to be thought of as new, exciting, and revolutionary. Oh, but after 35, yeah. <laughs> Anything invented after a person's 35 years old is obviously against the natural order of things. Uh-huh. And the expert commentator is Douglas Adams, um, author of many things, including the five-part Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trilogy and other, other things as well. On a more serious note, but still very positive and very uh, affirming, just want to consider for a few minutes some of the church's attitudes and how she has communicated the attitudes about communications to the church to the public and to the world. First of all, 
And, the, um, and I'm just pulling just a few quotes that I like from the major church documents that have been promulgated over the last 50 years and even before that. The church considers media technologies gifts from God. They acknowledge that in the first document on communications, it's one of the two first documents that came from the Second Vatican Council 50 years ago in 1963. And it was the first, first official church-wide from the Vatican document on communications, the first major document. It was one of the Vatican II documents. Mother Church, to be sure, recognizes that if these instruments are rightly used, they bring solid nourishment to the human race. Um, another document. Then I'll give you a link that'll have references uh, to this, to these various quotes. And for communicators, a very encouraging and positive thing. Communicators breathe life into the dialogue that happens when the, within the family of man. It is they who preside while the exchange proceeds around the vast round table that media have made. And this is from the Vatican, from the leaders of the church, the council fathers, and popes since then, the Pontifical Council of Social Communications. I mentioned the Second Vatican Council. The document specifically that came out 50 years ago this December is Intermerifica, or translated in English, they've translated on the instruments of social communication. And social communication is what they use to, as a term to refer to the media and to, and to the journalism profession, radio, television including public relations and advertising. These are instruments of social communication. Since it was the first time that the church had addressed communications in an official church-wide document, it specifically called for the creation of much more detailed instruction for the church, for the people of the world, about communications. And that was supposed to have been, in, been done uh, well, uh, within not, not too long a time, there wasn't a specific deadline. So in 1971, that document came out. It's called Communio et Progressio. And it was developed by what is now called the Pontifical Council for Social Communications, promulgated by Pope Paul VI. And it is a very extensive document, uh, a pastoral instruction, if you will, on how communication should be, instruments of social communication should be considered and how it should be implemented by the church, by Catholics working in religious media, as well as by Catholics working in the secular media. It also addresses another audience consisting of everyone, everyone who consumes media. It has pastoral instructions for the wise use of media. And this came out again in 1971 by the Pontifical Council of Social Communications. They called for, and they had planned to do a 20-year follow-up. They didn't quite, quite make the 20-year follow-up. Aetatis Nove, the English translation, is a new age. Uh, no, let's see. Um, no, they didn't want to say new age. But Aetatis Nove, we'll just stick with the Latin on that. A new era, that's what it was. Um, and this was a 20-ish year follow-up on how the church was doing globally on in using the instruments of social communication, how was it going in pastoring the instruments of social communication among the faithful? And it, uh, the council consists of communications experts, theologians, and uh, Vatican folk who are experienced in communications. They know what to look for. And be sure to turn off your cell phone alarms. I normally don't get calls. So, well, I say that, I don't know, my students, I don't know how often I get no, no, notices there. Okay, the, uh, are there are other documents, and I'm gonna mention just a few of them. There have been various papal apostolic letters that have been written by the popes. For one that I mentioned, I was gonna mention a couple today, the rapid development. This was the last apostolic letter, letter written by Pope John Paul II. It was promulgated early in 2005, just a, uh, a few months before he died, he gave it to the head of the Pontifical Council for Social Communications. It officially was promulgated a little later on, but that was Pope John Paul II's last uh, apostolic letter. And it addresses uh, 
is a very, very timely, timely letter looking at communications as it existed at that time, which is our time, and calling for the church to use it very effectively to, uh, to reach people very deliberately. Another one, also from Pope John Paul II, was a letter to artists that not only addresses people who are in communications, because it's very, art is very much involved in communications, but also uh, theater and other artist, artistic endeavors. And it is a, another inspirational and, and very affirming document for people working in the arts and addresses the importance of the arts um, from a Catholic Church perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a societal perspective, from a global perspective. And there, there have been many other pastoral letters on topics. There, I just wanted to mention that. Since 1967, there has been an annual World Communications Day. And every year the Pope releases a message on a theme. It's a short, I can usually condense it for class handouts to two pages using Microsoft Word. But it's a relatively short document on a topic involving communications. The first, uh, oh, two, three decades were pretty much devoted to mass media, although in the 90s we started seeing Pope John Paul II addressing the, an internet culture and this new thing called the internet that the church should use. And as the years went on, we started seeing incorporated in these documents more discussion of the importance of particularly using these new media, these electronic media, to communicate with the youth, to reach the youth, because the youth are primary users of the media, and certainly it continues to be the case. These are just a few. Um, then as there, since this is 47, I think, since 19. I have, well, do the math if you'd like to. I'm not going to do the math tonight. We don't do math in ComArts. Uh, <laughs> except we do timings, but we have calculators with time to do that. Um, these, are, these are just a few, a few of Pope Benedict's communication, uh, Communications Day messages. And I'll tell you, frankly, I was, I was surprised at how just about every message that came out during the years of Pope Benedict's papacy really was geared towards uh, very c contemporary communications processes and concerns. I thought, um, I, I thought it was going to be a more traditional approach to things, but he kept right on with the importance of the emerging new media and social media that John Paul II had started telling us about, using, teaching us about it. New technologies, new relationships, promoting a culture of respect, dialogue, and friendship was Pope Benedict's 2009 message. In 2012 was something that I really needed to hear, to read, to ponder, and then 2012 ended and I forgot all about it. So I've got to, I've got to come back to it though. It is a document called Silence and Word, Path of Evangelization. And in it, Pope Benedict called us to, to stop, to pause, to reflect, to connect again with God in, in an environment with all the, transact, all, the tra uh, all the distractions that we have because of social media, our whole lifestyle, the pace of life in society today. It's a real call to, to come within, to reconnect with God. And it is not only right on as far as communications is concerned, but it's a very useful reflection for everybody. The theme for last year, well, this current year, World Communications Day takes place normally a Sunday within, uh, Sunday before Pentecost, or Sunday after Pentecost, before Pentecost, somewhere around Pentecost. So it's usually in May, uh, possibly in June. So we have celebrated World Communications Day for 2013. And the theme for this year was specifically social networks portals of truth and faith, new spaces for evangelization. And the titles, the topics of the World Communications Day messages, you know, really sum up, they tell us what it's about. And it's a reflection, again, on, um, on this particular aspect, um, social, social networks. So we're all anxiously ready to find out what the 2014 theme is going to be. Because they announced the theme in the fall, late summer or fall. The message comes out in February on the Feast of St. Francis de Sales, the patron saint of journalists, 
but we know ahead of time what it's going to be about. So for 2014, we find out tomorrow. <laughs> the Pontifical Council's website says it's coming tomorrow, September 30th. Oh, I thought, oh. So, um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe some, some of you are familiar with when the Vatican releases things. We could stay up tonight, stay here and, and check online to find out when it's going to be. We can be the first to know, or we could find out tomorrow sometime. I'm sure it will be tweeted. So I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, these documents and a lot of other things are available at the website for the Pontifical Council for Social Communications. And their web address, it, it thankfully, is easy, uh, www.pccs.va. That's the Pontifical Council for Social Communications. That was the picture, the banner across one of, their, one of the pages on their website. And I thought it was great. So, since it's a public website, you know, copyrighted by the Vatican, yeah, but we're among friends here, so, yeah, really good. So, that, this really is a great resource, um, a great resource. A little later on, I'm going to share a little, a uh, couple of excerpts from a uh, talk that Pope Francis gave a week ago yesterday to the plenary session for the Pontifical Council for Social Communications, the worldwide gathering that, was that took place last week, uh, last, uh, a week ago and last weekend. And that's a, um, I got that from this site, all is available elsewhere. A lot of documents, the World Communications Day. They have been doing a very good job of improving the website and accessibility to the communications documents because I used to have to go digging around the Vatican website to find things. And over the, over the last few years, they've been doing a great job in, in uh, putting things together. Still lagging a little bit as far as uh, connection time, but that's probably because so many people are using it, I like to think so. Okay, social media is a little old. It doesn't have Pinterest on it, so I know that this is an old graphic. And uh, I don't think of Bing as a social thing so much, but it's there, a graphic. Talk a little bit about social media now. Talk about the church's attitude towards communications technology. It's very positive. And uh, she's concerned, though, that there are dangers and our number of pastoral instructions, letters of caution, but overall, these are gifts of God that we are to use for our own spiritual health and to evangelize, to bring people around the world to Jesus. I'm going to look at some of the concerns about social media right now. And I just have them all appear at once. These are some concerns that, that I have, other people have. One is the echo chamber effect. And that is the idea that through social media, people with same views or very similar views connect with one another, and that may be the primary or only channel of, of communication that people have. They're getting reinforced in their own views, which is good if you're learning new things, but it's not good if you're not hearing other thing about other things that are going on in the world. And I was thinking about my Facebook news feed and almost everybody on it, except the merchants that just want to sell me stuff, has uh, very similar political and uh, spiritual religious beliefs as I do. And we've got some people doing art and broadcasting communications of various types in there too. But it is, it, re, it reflects one particular worldview, or pretty much almost everybody who at that Facebook decides to uh, bless my uh, timeline with. Now I know I've got, I've got to have people who among the friends, however many hundred friends I have on Facebook, that um, have, have different views. But I don't see those as a rule. And the reason for it, I believe, is primarily economic. Because if we have a pleasant experience when we're using social media, we're going to come back more often. If we go into a place where we get agitated, where we feel uncomfortable, where we feel challenged most or all of the time, most of us are not going to come back very often. And Facebook wants us there, so we'll see the ads, so we'll click on the ads. It's a financial proposition. And that they provide a, a network that we can connect with other people, connect quote unquote, uh, in order to do that. I'm 
more time you spend online re reduces face-to-face -face communication. That's true in business, in social life. We're on a campus here, the university, so that, um, that really helps face-to-face -face communication. But even, um, even here on campus, uh, more so than ever before, every year it seems that more and more students are coming out of classrooms, if I'm in the hall, between classes, that, and they're on their cell phone, or on texting, or checking status updates or something, rather than talking to one another. But I'm sure that there is still a lot, I know there's a lot of conversation going on. But out there in the world, in the world of business, uh, in the world of, of whatever, it can be a real problem. There are a few companies who are setting policies requiring employees to not email or not text, not IM, other co-workers if they're in the same floor, the same office area, but get up and walk and talk to them. I don't think it's, it's usually not too extreme. There are funny stories about people texting the person next to them, but <laughs> I'm thinking of someone maybe four or five cubicles down. Uh, but companies are realizing how much they're losing by not having face-to-face -face communication. And so you know, they're trying to do something about that. Personal and professional concerns, privacy, confidentiality, uh, to the extent that we can control it. You know, Facebook keeps changing their privacy settings. Other services have privacy, some, some settings, some not. We should all read the terms of service. I do not read most terms of service, and most people do not. But um, certain, uh, with the NSA, the government spying and accessing things, there's a temptation, I think, for us to throw our hands up and say, we can't control this thing anyway. But we can still protect ourselves as much as possible. I do not put my grand, grand I don't post pictures of my grandkids. And well, occasionally I'll pass something out, my daughter does, but I don't name them. Um, no addresses or things like that. Um, try to reduce stalking. Government is gonna do what the government's gonna do. And businesses are gonna do what businesses are gonna do. But where you have control, you know, check the privacy settings on Facebook and other services that you're using to make sure it's, uh, it's what you want. Try to lock it down as, as much as you can. Personal safety, as I say, um, not giving addresses, schedules or whatnot. Uh, several of us were concerned about a friend of ours in, Cin in Cincinnati, a woman who works in Catholic communications there, who was really excited about um, <laughs> really excited about one of the services anyway. She's doing status, update, status updates all the time, saying where she was. And she's a single woman. She was always, or, or no, she's not single, but she was usually alone during the workday or whatnot. And she went to all kinds of places around the Cincinnati area. And we suggested it would not, it, we were concerned, some friends of hers. These are real friends, face-to-face -face friends. I actually know this person. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you should not be so open as to where you are all the time. Uh, and that goes not only for women, but for men, too. Uh, and be, be wary, careful of that. And uh, reputation, future employer access. It is, uh, I see more and more articles in the business press and the general press about employers who are uh, checking Facebook accounts for uh, prospective employees. And there have, been, there have been some court cases, um, so companies have backed off some. But a, lot of people, a lot of people are still trying to get away with it, uh, but they would ask a prospective employee to uh, give the company their Facebook username and password so they could log on to the account and see what's there, and even the private stuff. People that would want to work for a company like that, I would be concerned about. So, but there has, there's been some, uh, some uh, pushback and the courts and attorneys and whatnot have been on the individual's side. But there's still a lot out there in public and those embarrassing pictures never, or they really never go away even if you delete them. They might be found somewhere. You may set your privacy settings in such a way that you think they're private, but your friends who've seen that picture, somebody you sent it to, may not, may not have it uh, have it locked down as well. So that's uh, gonna, can affect reputations and it can haunt, haunt us for a long, long time. Social media addiction. 
some of the information that I'll be sharing in a, in a minute uh, I've talked about before, but a couple of studies, a 2011 study found that 54% of social networkers felt a form of addiction to sites such as Facebook and Twitter. A 2012 report found that the urge to tweet might be as strong as the desire to smoke or drink alcohol. In some cases, people wanted to check social media rather than sleep or have sex. That's a pretty strong addiction. It's a very strong addiction. I don't know if you're familiar with infographics, and they're a great way to condense information and show it, so that's why we have words up here. Uh, but anyway, one infographic explored Twitter addictions, suggesting that you might be addicted to Twitter if you only know what the if you not only know what the fail whale is, but you have a custom designed t-shirt with the fail whale on it. Now, that's pretty extreme. If you don't know what it is, good for you. But, but at any rate, uh, you've reserved a Twitter handle for your unborn child. That's the at whatever name. I'm at I Jim Coyle because Jim Coyle was already taken. Uh, you own the book Twitterature. I do not own the book Twitterature, and I don't know if it's made up or not. Uh, there is a public relations PR daily that is a daily update put out by a, a public relations practitioner called Mark Reagan. And got a lot of really solid articles about public relations and new media and so on. And they asked about Twitter addiction on Twitter after they'd saw this in infographic. And here's just a few of the things that pe people sent back to them. Uh, you might be addicted to Twitter when your partner joins to spend time with you. That's a scary thing. Husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, joining Twitter so they can spend time with you. If you introduce yourself by, with your at handle, say, hi, I'm at J I Jim Coyle. <laughs> you might be addicted to Twitter. You might be addicted to Twitter if you tweet more often than PR Daily publisher Mark Reagan. I think his staff did that or he wrote that. He has stuff all the time on Twitter. I'm sure he just does it in batches and is using a utility that spreads out the messages. PR Daily also uh, on their uh, PR Daily on their Facebook page asked people about Facebook addiction, and you uh, might be addicted if it's your if Facebook is your only source of news updates. We can read those things there. Uh, you check Facebook in the middle of the night when you get up to go to the bathroom. You spend all day on Facebook as a social media marketer. This would be somebody that might be working in that field and still sign on when you get home to see what's going on. You check your Facebook news feed before you go say good morning to your spouse. That's bad. Facebook doesn't occupy your day's downtime, but rather your life occupies your Facebook downtime. Bad perspective, bad, bad, bad. This, these, this are, these are various signs that uh, you might be addicted to Facebook. There's an introdu introduction to a book. The book is called Prayer in the Digital Age. It's by Mark Swain. It's a very, very good book, uh, addressing issues of prayer, contemplation, meditation, uh, with, in spite of and in the midst of all the digital distractions and some of the things we can do about it. But I was particularly taken by the foreword when I started reading the book. It's written by a woman named Jennifer Fulweiler, who I'll be talking about and showing a picture of uh, a little bit later on. She's a, a blogger, a uh, very dynamic Catholic communicator, mother of, I think, five kids now, maybe six, um, and just really an, an amazing person. She had been asked to write the foreword for this book. And I started, I, I read forwards, I read introductions. I like to get uh, behind the uh, behind the, the background, and I don't know I don't know if most people do that. I don't think most people do, but I find it very very helpful. So this starts great. This book almost didn't have a forward. The deadline was coming up, so I opened a blank document and started typing. I produced a fine first sentence. It was informative, to the point, and even a little witty. I couldn't keep such an accomplishment to myself, so I updated one of my social media profiles, just wrote the first sentence for a foreword for Mark Swain's new book. Back to work, I started on the second sentence. It didn't go so well. 
I tried a few word combinations, tested a couple different angles, but nothing gelled. It was getting difficult. It occurred to me that I should pray, just take a moment of silence to ask the Holy Spirit to guide my words. That sounded good. I'd definitely do it. But first, I opened up my instant messenger application to tell a friend, forward not going well, totally stuck. While I was online, I saw that I'd begun to receive replies to my first update. I replied to those and received more replies back. And hey, a friend posted the funniest video on her profile. After I watched it, I simply had to send it to my husband. While I was on email, I read a few jokes that family members were sending around. An hour later, I had watched three more videos and replied to 15 new status updates. I'd found out what the high temperature was going to be in Abu Dhabi that day <laughs> and learned the best way to make a paper airplane. I spent 15 minutes crafting a funny comment in response to a blog post whose sole content was a picture of a cat wearing a party hat. When I finally noticed the clock and saw how much time it elapsed, a whirlwind of conviction descended upon me. This was not good. It was time to stop procrastinating and get to work. So I wrote a status update. It's time to stop procrastinating and get to work. The replies came instantly. One thing led to another, and I ended up frantically clicking from link to link, fixated on my computer screen like a monkey chasing a shiny object. The next time I looked at the clock, I saw that my writing time for the day was over. I was supposed to have started cooking dinner for my family 20 minutes before. Now dinner would be late, and I had neither worked nor prayed, and what did I have to show for it? I read that, I just read it in a male voice, I didn't try to do Jennifer's voice, but man, working on this presentation, knowing I was gonna share this, and think, oh, every link I clicked on. I didn't do a lot of status updates while I was writing it, but it's a very inefficient process. But that is exactly what happens to so many of us. Let's see. Some suggestions on overcoming social media addiction, internet addiction was the title we ha uh, I had for the slide last year, if you were here. This is, uh, there is some old stuff, but there's a lot of new stuff that I'm sharing tonight, too. Uh, these are also things that Mr. Loizo, I'm sure, knows about, and he knows a whole lot more about addiction and other things. Uh, because of his background. So I'm just a guy who reads about it and experiences it. First steps, assess your habits. Keep a log of your media habits. This could be true of any habit. We're talking about media, social media, radio, television, whatever the case might be. Introduce the pause. Start to break the chain of events from your normal habits. Start to ask, do I really want to do this and why? Whether or not you do the task, the important thing is that you have at least stopped to think about it. Take a 10 minute break every hour. That would be great, uh, very hard to do. But there are a lot of utility programs, you can just Google and find them that might set off an alarm every hour. Get up from the computer, walk around, go outside if it's a nice day, but at least walk around, get away from it. Changing habits. Start with your biggest trigger, the thing that gets you started the most. I, for, for whatever reason, I, yeah, I'm addicted to playing solitaire on my iPhone. That's almost the first thing I do in the morning. I don't check status updates or whatnot, but I might try a few hands of solitaire before I get out of bed. And Every time I go through this list and look at things, I think, oh, maybe I should not do that. So I have stopped a couple of times, which is really good. There's progress being made. Find a replacement habit. Find something else to do. Um, I used to smoke uh, when I was in college and for the first few years of my working life. And it, it was hard to quit, but I did quit. And like a lot of people, I started eating more. As, it wasn't a positive replacement habit because I wasn't eating nourishing things. I was uh, snacking. But find a replacement habit, habit deliberately, something good to do. 
prayer would be great. Do the habit after the trigger every time. So find yourself, if I find myself starting to play solitaire again, hopefully I will re re replace that with something positive and close the app, put the phone down. Yeah, and use positive public pressure. Tell other people what you're wanting to do and let them help you. Be accountable to them and tell them to be sure to let you know when you're not accomplishing what you had hoped to. Now the goal is not to be controlled by your, the goal, I knew I'd say this wrong, the goal is to not be controlled by your information sources. We're at a point in a lot of people's lives, hope we're in a great environment here at Franciscan University, but it is still a temptation to just fill our lives with distractions. Some of them good things by themselves, but uh, cumulatively taking up so much time that we don't have time to do the things that we should be doing. So we need to schedule some things. If it takes scheduling prayer time, setting a, a maximum amount of time that you're gonna spend on the web or your various sources. Work without distractions, learn to focus. One of the conversations that's taking place on campus is that this year is the idea of multitasking. Since uh, ResNet is available in the academic buildings especially, it's a concern for faculty. It should be a concern for all of us because multitasking is kind of a myth as far as being able to do things effectively and do them well. Schedule limited time for your information resources. Choose your sources wisely. And Dr. Coyle, get some sleep because I can check one more thing just before I go to bed. Next unit of the talk, the next section. Planting seeds is what I'm calling it, Catholics and social media. And I want to um, share some examples of people who are and have been successfully using social media particularly, and I'm using that um, as a term to differentiate from mass media from the traditional broadcasting and print journalism. And these are just a few of the people. There are thousands, probably tens of thousands of people who are setting out to share their faith or their beliefs, maybe authentic beliefs in line with the church, maybe other denominations, and maybe um, these social media are also being very actively used by new, the new atheist movement, who are very, very proactive, very aggressive in trying to convert people to atheism, really more so than at any other time. One of the people that I'm gonna share with had taken some classes in social communication when he was in the Vatican, and he was a priest there, studied social communications for two years, and has applied it starting a few years after he finished his studies. He was a diocesan priest, a pastor of four churches in the Netherlands. They have a definite priest shortage there. And he, um, his bishop asked him to also um, work on media and social media for the diocese. And so the diocese sponsored his two years in Rome studying social communication. And one of the courses that he had was in radio and he ended up doing podcasting, so he was very glad he took it, although his major was television. His instructor came up with uh, and emphasized and Father Roderick still remembers five steps of effective communication, especially as it applies to the church. So I've got two things here. I should have had that up earlier. The five eyes. The first one is interest. We've got to get people's interest. Father Roderick shares in, in his new book that just came out that um, he was giving a talk. He'd been asked to give a talk in the Vatican on social media and was giving the talk and dur during one of the breaks, a priest, an older priest, got up or came up to him and said, this social media stuff stinks. It doesn't work. And I said, what do you mean? Of course it works. Here, look at this. He opened a laptop and showed, him his, showed Father Roderick his Facebook page. And it had a serious looking picture of this priest and one post saying, if you want to ask me any questions about the Catholic Church, please do so. And that was it. He'd had that page up for a few months and was, this junk, this Facebook's junk because he got no replies, no interaction. You've got to get people interested in 
whatever it is you're putting out there, the basic of communications. Secondly, you need to inform. People come to your site, whether it's for entertainment or information or questions about the faith, inform them. Give them some information right away, who, what, where, when, why, maybe about the site, about yourself, so that they just don't come to this attractive looking website or try this really greatly produced audio podcast, but let there be some substance. There needs to be content. You've got to have some content there for people when they come. Thirdly, instruct. The way Father Roderick puts it in his book is, what's the most popular type of video that's searched for on YouTube? So yeah, cats, cat videos. But right after that, and I don't know if this is literally true, are how-to videos. YouTube has become a tremendous, act, uh, a tr tremendous resource for figuring out how to do stuff. You know, I've looked at them to fix appliances this summer. I've had a couple of car questions. I don't do a lot of heavy-duty car stuff, but I needed to replace some lamps or something that was stuck on something. And there were videos that showed how to do it. So instruction is very popular. In a faith setting, as a Catholic communicator, you may formally be intending your resource, your podcast, your website, uh, your blog, may be intended to catechize, may be intended to teach about the faith. Or it may be to entertain. This Father Roderick, and I'll show you his picture in a little bit, um, is, is one of the real pioneers in using new media social media uh, by Catholics for the church. He started getting his audiences not on a Catholic podcast, but he, uh, he's a geeky guy. He's done Star Wars podcasts and things like that. And that's what has attracted uh, tens of thousands of people to his podcasts. And he does it from the perspective of, of a real fan, a genuine fan but also a Catholic priest and brings in the Catholic perspective and worldview into the discussion of the symbolism and the spirituality in Star Wars. And he's done one on various video games and all kinds of series. But he really likes this stuff. He's a real fan and he's talking to real fans. He's connecting and that's what social media should be doing so well. It should allow you to connect with people like you. They get to know you. They get to trust you. They may disagree with you, depending on what the content is. But as long as you respect them, they will respect you almost all the time. Thinking of YouTube videos. Well, those have no or comments. They have no respect. Involve people. Get them involved. It's another great strength of the new media is that the audience can respond. Sometimes your audience, but you can also be producing your own material and you want to hear from other people. You want to get a dialogue going. Maybe it's through comments on a blog. YouTube comments can be constructive. There's another person we'll talk, I'll talk about in a little bit, that reads the YouTube, the comments on his YouTube videos. He's a, he's a different, another Catholic priest. And a lot of them are really scathing. It's not a lot of them are just the junky dumb ones, but a lot of them are really scathing. But he finds that useful. It helps him get to know his audience, and he often produces follow-up. He does short, short eight-minute or so videos on contemporary topics, the Catholic perspective, little teaching videos. Um, and he'll often do a follow-up, maybe two follow-ups, based on the kinds of input he's getting from people who leave comments, either on YouTube or on the ministry's website. So involve people in, in some way, shape, or form. And finally, inspire them. Whether our social media projects are specifically intended to evangelize or to catechize of religious goals or not, we still should inspire people. Inspire them to be the, the best people they can be 
inspire them to become closer to God, even if it's not a religious topic that you're involved in at all. Share your life as a Catholic, as a Christian. Share your life as a person in relationship with Jesus Christ with other people. And the Holy Spirit can work through that. You're planting seeds. These are a couple of excerpts from the talk that Pope Francis gave to the plenary session of the Pontifical Council for Social Communications on Saturday the 21st of this month. And the, the, his, his uh, I mean the whole thing is great. And, um, but I did pull out a few sentences that I wanted to share in this context, this talk. We must ask ourselves, are we up to the task of bringing Christ into the arts or better still, of bringing others to meet Christ? Can we work alongside the pilgrim in today's world as Jesus walked with those, too tiny here, as Jesus, oh, you can't read that there. As I say, I've got two things here, okay. Oh, that's even better, it's on the bigger part of the screen here. Can we walk alongside the pilgrim of today's world as Jesus walked with those companions to Emmaus, warming their hearts on the way and bringing them to an encounter with the Lord. Are we able to communicate the face of a church which is home to all? Another couple of paragraphs down, he says, the challenge is to rediscover through the means of social communication, as well as by personal contact, the beauty that is the heart of our existence and journey, the beauty of faith and the beauty of the encounter with Christ. Even in this world of communications, the church must warm the hearts of men and women. A personal encounter. There's Father Roderick. That's the person I was talking about, a real pioneer in social communications, Catholic Church. Um, and this is, uh, I, can, I can hold it up. This is a book just came out. Um, not too many weeks ago. And it is a, it's called Geek Priest, Confessions of a New Media Pioneer. And it shares a lot of his story, but it uh, talks about some of the early podcasts and the audience connections that he's made for podcasts that are not uh, about the church at all, but rather the church's perspective on it. He got started in podcasting in 2005, late February 2005. He was at the annual meeting, uh, or at a meeting of the Pontifical Council for Social Communications, and there was a, a rustling, a hubbub on the stage among the speakers and the organizer, and it was a time when Pope John Paul II was taken to Gemelli Hospital. You know, he was released and went back to the Vatican, but this was in the last few months of his life. And so Father Roderick had a recorder with him because he wanted to try this podcasting thing that he'd read about um, and heard about through a, podcasting was brand new in fall of 19, or 2004 and really got started in the beginning of 2005. So he recorded his process of going from the meeting uh, to the hospital and uh, what was happening there, but not as a reporter, but as somebody who was going through the, the experience, and it was as if from a, a, it was as if we were going with him, as if he was taking me, a friend, and all the other listeners, it's one-on-one, -on -one, as if he was taking a friend and telling us what was going on. So it's a very personal type, a very personal type of podcasting. He did the same, he did a lot that year. Um, he was there when Pope John Paul II passed away, and he was there uh, during the conclave, he came back from Holland during the conclave, and was there reporting on the conclave, and was there when Pope Benedict was elected and announced. And he was in St. Peter's Square in the midst of it, standing on a chair so he could see over the crowd, and he was a kid who was so excited and I found out the Pope's name, but he also talked to people around him. I had been watching on CNN or Fox or whatever when we got news here on campus that a Pope had been elected. We ran to the nearest television, which says I work in Com Arts, was just the next room from my office. I didn't have to go very far, but uh, we watched for the announcement. Now we watched the typical news stuff. 
and it was great. It was a nice experience. But the way podcasting works, uh, production is done, and then it's uploaded to a podcasting host, and then people download it onto their computers, their MP3 players, various ways, however they can get it. And so there was a lag time. I didn't hear his recording until the next day. But I really had a sense of what it was like to be in St. Peter's Square when that announcement came. Wasn't at all like the experience of watching the news, watching the same thing happen on the news. Very personal. I had been listening to Father Roderick essentially from the beginning of his podcasting. And so I'd gotten to know his style a little bit, but it's very personal and uh, can continue to uh, follow him in podcasts. And he does all kinds of stuff. I have no idea how he's doing his parish work or other things, because he is everywhere. He's even been to Franciscan University of Steubenville for one of our Com Arts conferences a few years ago. So he's, uh, he's a real pioneer. Well, he's been, uh, he, he's a geek, loves technology, and he, is doing, has been doing video for the last couple of years in addition to doing some audio podcasts. And his videos are on YouTube, and they're pretty popular. Um, I'd read some article about him saying, oh, we're getting a lot of views. Well, the numbers aren't all that high. But um, certainly more than I have, so you've got a lot of views. And this is, uh, I'm going to share, share a video that he um, uploaded and of a video of he at St. Peter's Square the day or the evening that um, Pope Francis was elected. And here's what happened, the guy who was in St. Peter's Square with his technology. Brandon Vogt is another person I wanted to mention. Yeah, yeah I can hold his book up. <laughs> People who write books hold up their book inside. So I, I read books, so I hold <laughs> books that I read. This is a great book, it came out a couple of years ago. It's called The Church in New Media. And it's blogging converts, online activists, and bishops who tweet. It's got a collection of 12 people, 12 contributors to it, wrote 12 different chapters, and how they are using new media and social media in different aspects of the church life. Some to evangelize, some to catechize, some within the church, to building community within the church and various other areas. So that's another good book, another terrific book. But it's also a source of some of the information we're seeing tonight. He is a dynamic guy. An engineer works in, uh, north, or lives north of Orlando. I don't know if he has started doing uh, church media work full time or not. He's all over, really incredibly dynamic and is the best presenter I've ever seen. I saw him at a conference. So uh, he was here this summer. I did not see him. He's here, did a workshop a breakout session for defending the faith. We're hoping to get him up back here sometime. Jennifer Fulweiler, she's the woman who wrote the preface, or the foreword rather. Uh, she described a little bit of her giving into social media temptation all the time and just what I do. She is another really, really dynamic person. Uh, she's a mom. As I say, I think I said she had maybe five or six kids and her um, main blog is called Conversion Diary, and she was a, was a solid atheist for most of her life. And it was, it's just because she didn't know anything else. We're going to play a short video that was produced as a promo for a book that, last I checked, is not out yet. So I don't, uh, there were some, uh, Jennifer had some health issues a few months ago, so I don't know if that's held things up or not. But she uh, just talks a little bit about the process. But she grew up as an atheist. Her, her dad was, and they were very close. And it just, um, if it could, couldn't be scientifically proven, it, it didn't exist, uh, kind of a situation. But she is a, is a very, very strong convert. She had been, as uh, she did, I th she touches on in this promo, so I won't get to it. But there also is a, a video um, a reality show, quote unquote, about her life called Minor Revisions that is, was produced by a woman named Amanda Malewski for Net Catholic Television um, in New York area, I think. 
Amanda is a, is a graduate of our program. She's been doing a lot of stuff, uh, film in Rome. Oh, she's been, she's been doing amazing stuff over the years. But it's a three-part series that was originally shown on, in the coverage areas there in, in the East. But it's uh, all three episodes have been on YouTube for a while. And it's, it's a fun mix of uh, daily life. But it really, over the course of the three programs, is, is a great explanation of the process that she experienced, that she went through, that ultimately led her and her husband to the Catholic Church. She touched on a number of things there. As I mentioned, uh, this particular piece was done for a, a Christian audience, and non, uh, not specifically Catholic. But it is, is, is Catholicism, insert Catholic for Christian uh, throughout that testimony of hers, you know, get it. And that's what she went through. And she really um, you know, approached it uh, very intellectually. And as she said, the, uh, uh, the Catholics particularly, but the Christians had uh, you know, really strong arguments. And she was uh, not excited about what she was seeing from the atheists. Her blog was the source of her faith. I just want to mention, too, another blogger, my friend Vicki, and she and I have been partnering on a blog of hers. She suffers from frontotemporal dementia, was diagnosed in the summer of 2009, but it had symptoms before that, was given six months to two years to live, but is still alive today. But her uh, quality of life and her, her ability to do things has really gone downhill significantly. It's a disease that uh, it's usually diagnosed, if at all, pretty late while it progresses. It's terminal. Research is being done on it, but it does not have, uh, it's not big enough. You know, Alzheimer's is the primary type of dementia that people get who get dementia. But FTD and a couple of other dementias that are very close to it are dementias that hit people in middle age, in their 40s and their 50s, most commonly. And if you think about that, that's when people are raising families. Their careers are, are going along pretty well. And it has, can have tremendous impact. And it certainly affected Vicki in those ways as well. But she started posting some things on Facebook. As I say, she's a great communicator. She still writes well. She writes great when she can. And I'm working with somebody uh, who to try to maybe put together a, a booky kind of thing, maybe an e-book or whatnot, trying to consolidate a lot of her posts in which she's very frank and often very funny about what she's going through and how it differs from her expectations. And sometimes it's just family, sometimes remembrances, but sometimes it's been when she's had a really rough day and, and shares about it, very open and honest. And it's not specifically faith-based, faith-driven, but she you know, in, includes all her Catholic stuff as well. And there, um, we don't have a large readership. We do have a lot of page views, but not like the big sites, but we get a lot of comments about people appreciating, uh, appreciating her sharing because most people don't hear about it unless someone they know gets it in their family or they themselves. And so that's when you start finding out about it. And that's how we made connections when Vicky was diagnosed. We started looking. Uh, a bishop who tweets, Auxiliary Bishop Christopher Coyne from Indianapolis, is crazy on Twitter. Um, that was just a screen grab that I got this afternoon from his Twitter feed. And a bunch of stuff there. So he's, he really is very, very active on Twitter. And he's one of many examples. This guy you've probably heard of, most of you have, Father Robert Barron. And many people who may not have heard of his ministry before have heard of him through his Catholicism series, uh, their Catholicism project. But he, through his Word on Fire ministry, has been producing all kinds of materials and interacting with people in many, as many ways as he can. And he uh, has, among other things, he's the one who has been doing videos on YouTube, short eight-minute-ish, six to eight, ten-minute uh, reflections on or responses to things going on. Because of time, I'm just going to show a portion of this video here, but to give you a flavor on it, early in early August, there was an issue of Time Magazine that, whose cover story was devoted to childless couples and the childless lifestyle. And it was 
supposedly objective, journalistic, but it's pretty good. Uh, so about a month later, Father Barron put this on YouTube. So that brings us to the end of the planned talk. Just wanted to mention that I will have links. I have a nice little, I meant to have links, but ran out of time message at the site now. That URL, with or without the www.jimcoyle.tv, will take you to a page of my blog, and it will have links. I'll have the references that I mentioned tonight and a few other ideas. So um, if you also, if you want to comment on anything tonight, you can comment on it there, too. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.